Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Chip McLaughlin, Chip is uh, has been a friend for a long time. Um, I met him in the Pringle Fab days while we were doing things in Texas, but he is also the president of Eco Earthworks, which is a construction company. He's a, an expert Grom pilot. He is a KOH and was a Dirt Riot racer. He's, in fact, how I met Zandy Willems. And then it's uh, graduate or went to school at Texas A&M and the University of New Orleans. We'll get into all that here shortly. But hey, Chip, thank you for coming on board and spending some time this morning. Thank you, Big Rich. It's good to talk to you. It's been uh, friends for a long time. You opened up, and I'm sitting here thinking. I think that was back around 2010 is when we first met. Um, might have been even earlier than that, but absolutely by then. Um, I think we first met, it was before we did, before I did the visit to um, Rednecks with Paychecks. But yeah. I don't remember the exact date that we met. Yeah, that would have been around uh, 12, but you were doing events down in Spring, Texas too. Correct. Spring, Texas, we did in 2000 and what was it? 2007. Yeah. So had, yeah. Back around us, this one I met like Wyatt Pemberton and uh, Matt Enix and all those guys. Yeah. Back in those those uh, crazy days in Texas, right after a hurricane, which is uh, luckily we're not having any of those right now in Texas. Right. Exactly. So let's uh, let's start right off. Chip, where were you born and raised? So I was born in Houston, Texas. Um, and then moved to Dallas in second grade. My dad uh, owned a company and transferred up to Dallas. And so I finished high school in Plano, Texas, just which is in North Dallas. And uh, grew up with a brother and two sisters. My youngest sister's adopted. And uh, graduated and ended up in New Orleans for 10 years at 
uh, well, let me phrase that. Before that, I ended up in uh, Galveston, A&M Galveston for two years with plans to go to the main campus at Texas A&M and then ended up in New Orleans uh, and finishing at University of New Orleans with mechanical engineering. Excellent. And going to school um, in that Dallas, Plano area, what was uh, what was that like? It Was it was it far enough back that it was still kind of rural up in Plano and not just yeah. a suburb, suburbia? So I lived right there in Plano, Frisco area, which if people are familiar with North Dallas. That is just huge now. That's where the Dallas Stars have their uh, – or sorry, Dallas Cowboys have the star where they practice. Uh, and it's just huge. Uh, but when I lived there as a kid, uh, it was a lot of cornfields and rural areas. And then our family uh, still has. We bought it in 1980. Dad did. Uh, we have a ranch up about an hour and a half out of Dallas. So I'd grow up in Plano during the week. And then on Friday after school, we'd go to the ranch. So that's where I learned a lot of the, you know, how to ride motorcycles, four-wheelers, break stuff, fix it. You know, so I had the best of both worlds, city during the week and country in the weekends. And were you, um, on the school side of it, did you play any sports or anything like that? I didn't do any school related sports when i was in high school i took uh, auto paint and body because i just liked doing things with my hands i like building things uh but i was race i started racing motorcycles when i was 14 i did hair scrambles and duros okay and did all that all the way through high school and then when i left for college i stopped and uh, when i graduated went and bought another motorcycle started it again but i was getting older and uh, found that trees hurt a lot worse when you're older and longer to heal. <laughs> yes. Don't I know yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. So it, uh, it just kind of evolved from there, but uh, I didn't do any really school related sports, but at, during high school and that I uh, rode motorcycles. Okay. And did you, uh, was the ranch that you guys have or had, um, was that a working ranch or more of a get out and enjoy it? Uh, it was both. Um, okay. We ran cattle on it. So we first started, you know, we just like commercial cattle and then went to beef masters to raise, uh, raise big bulls. And so me and a couple buddies and my brother, we built a lot of fences, did a lot of holes, you know, pipe fences, barbed wire, um, dropped a lot of hay bales on the highway, you know, all the fun stuff that teenagers will do on a ranch. But uh, yeah, it was working ranch and uh, I'd spend the summers up there. Uh, with one of my buddies and we, that's what we did all summer. We'd get up at six in the morning, work till it got too hot, go home, take a nap and then get up again and work till nine o'clock or so at night. And, uh, you know, for a high school kid, I think I was making, I don't know, six, $7 an hour working 50 hours or so a week. And man, we thought we were rich back then. <laughs> Absolutely. And so what, uh, what was the first car you ever drove? I started driving when I was nine and it was a 19, 19- I want to say it was a 1977 Dodge Tradesman Maxi van. Nice. It was, uh, dad got it. It had only two front seats in it. The thing was long and he raced motorcycles. So he put four captain chairs in it and then the back had bench seats and he could put a motorcycle in the middle of it and we'd go to his races and that we, uh, we would sleep in that. And, uh, but yeah, that's the first one I remember driving. I know I hit a tree and blew out the window one time in it. That wasn't a good one, but that was the first car I remember driving. Okay. And uh, what was your first four-wheel drive vehicle? 
It was a 1985 Chevy half-ton long bed. Full look, and I had uh, I saw I actually saw the license plate yesterday. I had Wild Four by Four WLD Four X Four was my license plate that I saved my money and got as a personalized plate. But that was my first four wheel drive, and I thought it was cool because I had twelve KC lights on it. <laughs> and on the uh, was it a chrome uh, light bar on the back, sport bar? Oh, of course. You know the double bar. Yep. You know all guy look, and uh, yeah, I thought that was the coolest truck ever. I wish I still had it actually. There are there are vehicles that all of us have gone through that we wish we still had. Yeah, that uh, that started my four wheel drive deal. Um, the funny thing is, when we were growing up on the ranch, Dad never would buy four wheel drives because he said we would go further before we got stuck, which was true. So we always had two wheel drives, and I treated some of those like they were four wheel drives. Right. I uh, I've always professed never use your tools until you absolutely have to. So like with a, a four wheel drive vehicle, uh, I taught my grandson how to drive, you know, our Jeep. And, you know, he, first thing he'd do when he gets into it is put it in four wheel drive. And I said, no, 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 no. You drive it in two wheel drive. And then when you get stuck, you put it into four wheel drive. Then when you get stuck in four wheel drive, you turn on one locker and then you turn on the next locker and then if you're still stuck, you get out and use the winch. <laughs> yeah, if you had a winch. I don't think I had my first winch until, oh, I had a, I think I had a 97 Jeep TJ. That was the first one I ever put a winch on. But uh, back when I was wheeling as a kid, I got a Toyota four by, uh, Toyota pickup truck after that. And I got stuck so bad out uh, in Grand Prairie, it's called uh, 360, and I was driving down the side of a railroad tracks and ended up getting stuck, and I got pulled out by four train cars. They unhooked all the cars and left the engines, and they pulled me out. Got a big ticket for it, but that's my best stuck story yet. So no, you got pulled out by a train. I did. That yeah, is a, that's, that is a good story. Yeah, it cost a lot of money when I went to the... <laughs> commissioner showed up he was not happy the police thought it was funny until he showed up but yeah that's my best stuck story to date i think i was <laughs> how old were you 20 20 all yeah. right and so um in those uh say the school years what were you like as a student were you good bad indifferent i I got an engineering degree and it wasn't because I'm, I say I'm smart. I have a lot of common sense stuff. I also broke a lot of stuff, but I didn't, I don't test well. So I struggled with the math and it was one of those goals that I made when I can remember back to elementary school that I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. My dad was, my uncle was, my grandfather was, um, there was, uh, and it just, that, that was where my interest always was. I was always taking things apart. Um, I struggled with, you know, the classroom setting. And I even remember being in college taking tests and guys would make up formulas to figure out the answer to questions. And, you know, so I was a CB student, you know, I, I did what I could to get by and ended up with a degree. And I uh, told myself when I finished, I was never going to go be an engineer. I wanted to do it. So, um, I could do sales or whatever I wanted to do, but I had an engineering background so people would believe me more and uh, what I've done. And so when you took that 
when you finally got your degree, what did you, uh, what did you start doing right away? Well, I told myself I wouldn't go be an engineer. And the first job I got was an engineer. It was for uh, Exxon in Chalmette, Louisiana. And I was building the pipelines through the plant. And it was asphalt. I think it's the project I had. We were moving asphalt, hot asphalt. And I was more intrigued that I could make a two-foot diameter pipe that was, I don't know, roughly 4,000 linear feet, grow six feet if you just did it straight in the way that it would expand. And uh, so my job was to figure out how to make that pipeline run and it have all the stress relief in it where it wouldn't bust the pipe. But I got bored real quickly sitting behind a computer looking at AutoCAD and all this stress analysis software. And uh, so that lasted about a year and I got out and went and did sales. So that's what I started. Okay. At, uh, oh, it was only an engineer for about a year. All right. And what's the, uh, what was the, the next step? You said you, you started doing sales. What was that? What field did, was that in? I started with conveyors and for about a year and a half and then, uh, market kind of took a turn. And so I left there and got into electrical. And so for 20 years, I did electrical sales for Siemens, Toshiba, Rockwell automation. So like switch gear, motor control centers, variable frequency drives, um, transformers, all the stuff you see in all the refineries. So I've been pretty much all the different paper plants, uh, chemical plants from Baton Rouge or New Orleans all the way to Houston. And even down to the Mexico border, I'd go in and work in these plants and sell equipment. And uh, back about 2018, 19, actually when I met Zandy, um, I was getting burnt out and needed a change. And that's how I got wrapped up with the uh, Eco Earthworks. And I've been doing that since 19, I think now. Okay. So three, four. And, and that is, um, you guys do a lot of earth moving projects? Yeah. Zandy, um, for those that don't know, Zandy owns Rufus Racing. Uh, he has a company called Eco Staff, where we have. I don't know, anywhere from five to 800 electricians through Texas on temporary assignment. They were the staffing company. And Zandy started Earthworks to go dig uh, trenches for their electrical company. Like some of his biggest customers, they complained about not having good contractors. So Zandy's like, I'll start one and I'll help you out. And so that's how Earthworks started. And so we'll go and do... You know, all the electrical trench work for like, we've done it for HEB, hospitals, um, schools. Uh, and now we're doing, starting to do utilities. You know, we'll go and do the grading, then we'll go put in the sewer, water, uh, drainage, storm. You know, we'll do all of it. So anything involves moving dirt and I can find a way to make some money. That's what we're doing. Cool. Cool. And uh, that TJ that you said you had. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the process? Was that, did you buy it with like the stock factory wheels on it or, you know, what was the process you, you went through on that vehicle? So I guess I got to back up a little bit how I got into that part. Okay. Uh, motorcycles until I guess it was about 28, you know, after I got out of school and I kept hurting myself and I remember I was racing in, I think it was Alabama. And I hit a tree and stretched my ACL on my shoulder, which I didn't even know I had an ACL on my shoulder. And uh, I borrowed my mom's Corvette 
and went and did this thing called autocross. I've never heard of it, saw it. And I had her car and I went and raced it. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. I can pull up to a race, pull out a lawn chair, race, and then drive home. And I'm not hurt. So that started this road racing type career I had where I went through a bunch of different cars. Um, with Corvette, a Viper, Lotus. You know, a lot of people like to go on vacations or buy stuff for the house. I was buying cars. <laughs> and, uh, then I got into... I found this Jeep. I came across this 97 Jeep TJ that was on 31s. And I was like, I got to go do it. And I put, you know, big tires on it, like 33s and put a Ford 8.8 in it with a limited slip. And I thought I could go anywhere with it and went and did a Jeep Jamboree. And, you know, I just kept, you know, I build it up, sell it and then keep going. And then, uh, ended up being what turned into that, I call it the Ultra 4 car back in the day, the one I started doing dirt riding. So that actually started as a TJ. It was oh, a different wow. TJ. But uh, it started as a TJ, and I kept cutting the Jeep parts off and putting more tubes on. Right. And so, did you learn to did you learn to weld like in high school programs, or did you learn on working on the ranch? So I learned to stick weld on the ranch because we were doing, you know, taking drill stem, and that's how we made pins and everything so that's you know i stick welded all until high school and then that's when i learned to mig weld you know body panels and stuff like that and then it, my senior design project in college was to make a uh, they called it mini baja they gave you a five horsepower Briggs and stratton motor and with some safety things and oh by the way it had to float and it had to float it had to float we had to cross the lake in it Okay. And so we had to learn how to make it propel itself in the water and then go racing through the woods and jumps. And uh, so our bright idea was to make it out of 6061 aluminum tubing. So that's when I self-taught myself how to TIG weld. And uh, I think it was 50 people that did it. We ended up eighth. And the only reason we ended up eighth is because one of the other guys hit a tree and broke one of the hubs we made. So we had to re-weld it and took off again. Uh, but that's when I learned to TIG weld and I wouldn't say I'm a great welder. Uh, if you go talk to Diamond or any of the guys in the shop, they make fun of my welding, but I don't weld every day like they do. Right. I don't weld at all. <laughs> I, they do better than I do. I'll have to weld, I'll weld if I need to. Yeah. And, I, uh, I, first thing I ever, when I lived in Cedar City back in the 90s, I tried to weld together a bumper. And the first time I went to use that bumper, hooking a chain to it, or strap to pull a friend's uh, Super Duty out of the mud. And this was on a Mitsubishi or a little Dodge D50. Um, right. I, I tugged a little bit, wasn't going to move, so I backed up, got a good run at it, thinking I'm going to jerk him out. And at about the quarter mile mark, I'm like, man, he's, you know, I don't even feel him back there. And I look at my bumper. <laughs> is sitting on the ground with this strap straight to it and he's just dying laughing in the in this vehicle. I just pulled it right off of the frame. <laughs> yeah, I've had some of those welds too. <laughs> Looked more like uh like a bird cage than it did uh, a bumper, but so at that point I realized let people do what they do best. <laughs> right. Exactly. So then when you're doing all the the stuff to the TJ, um you started competing in it as well? Yeah. So 
the first one I did, it was back when Mo Rock started and they came down there to spring. I came out and watched um your event. I think it's when y'all did the gunite and stuff down there at Spring Creek. Right. And uh I'd kind of started monkeying with a uh a G thin. I bought a, a wrecked one. Uh, it was a 99 TJ. And uh I just kind of started adding on to it. And that's when uh, Wyatt was running the triple nickel buggy. And I remember him coming around the corner and it was just flat. And I remember going, how the heck is he doing that? And that's when I learned what ORIs were. And this is when I started the Pringle Fab days. Okay. And uh, I became a, a dealer for ORI back in those days and started building on this TJ, got it up and then went out. Uh, did the Mo Rock for a while, and then uh, that turned into going and doing like halftime shows at the Astrodome, well, Reliant, whatever you want to call it, for the monster trucks. And then that's where I started. I met the Gillstraps, Clay and Shelby. I think Shelby was 14 when I first met her wheeling, and we'd go around racing, and I think they're the ones that told me about Dirt Riot. And uh, so we started coming doing the, the dirt right. We met Dale Gray and Sean Iman and Carl and Mike and all those guys. And we just enjoyed it. And so that TJ, I flipped it over. I made it real nice, did the nice paint on it. Then I flipped it over. Um, and so we started cutting stuff off of it. And then I got a Clay Gilstrap sold me a Jimmy's four by four chassis. So I, Took everything off that TJ and made that. I called it the Cheeto because um, it went with Pringles, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and uh, was gonna, my goal was to go race King of the Hammers. And that was right about the time I was moving from Houston to Dallas. And I didn't make the – I think I came out to your dirt riot. Was it at Bridgeport? And I think it was the last time you raced at Bridgeport. And it was a big finals, and I went out there, and I blew the radiator hose off and got a flat and didn't make the cut to get a hammer spot. So that would have been in 13. And uh, so I sold the buggy, and then you call me in January, right at like a week after I sell the buggy, and go, hey, I got a spot for you at King of the Hammers. Remember that? Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. So it, uh, I borrowed a buggy called uh, Mike Odom. And we ran a wide open design buggy called the Hustler. And that was in KOH at 14. And I was the driver of record, although I never drove. And we blew the transmission up in Aftershock. And then I was hooked on King of the Hammers. Well, I went to King of the Hammers the first time in 2011 and as a volunteer. And then raced it in 14. Missed 15. And I've been back to everyone since. Nice. Nice. I do. I do remember giving you that call. We, yep. we had uh, had David given us. Oh, I don't know. I think it was like five spots, and right. so we had. Uh, and I I wasn't gonna, you know, just leave it to the top five if they were already, you know, if they already had a spot. So we yep. we started working down, and you weren't too far out of there um, to be able to get that spot. So. That's uh, that was good. Sean asked on it. He had already done hammers in 11. I think he raced it then. And 
I think only one or two people passed on it to get to me, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's correct. And that was a that was a wild time. It was still that was still back in the days when you can just. I think that was the first year they actually made the parking grid in pits because I know in eleven you just pulled up and I woke up that morning and everybody's lined up in front of the trailer and we were basically on the starting line for the two thousand eleven <laughs> uh, race. But man, things have changed since. Yes, they have. <laughs> they have. Dave has done a good job of uh, of building that thing up to what it is. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a crazy mind, and he's got good people around him that make this crazy ideas work. Um, but the interesting part about that, ever since I started racing back when your days, I've always had Brad Christensen sitting next to me. Right. Uh, and today, he is still sitting next to me. So we're both growing old and together quickly in these race cars excellent but he uh we would he actually would race we would bet each other back at your races in the morock days that whoever the loser was got their hood painted by the winner and i remember he had to run one of yours races and it says i lost a piglet or uh, i lost a pringle and i, don't know, I did it some like barn bread color on his tj and then he snuck into my house and taped off my hood and made it purple and green, neon purple and green. And it says, I lost a piglet. And you have to run that hood the next race. Well, my race was at Reliant Stadium in front of like, I don't know, 70,000 people at the Monster Truck Show. <laughs> he always, uh, we went back and forth, but he always seemed to get the better bets. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's uh, let's talk about you know that those friendships that you built in in Wheeling. You said that's where you you know out there you ran into Wyatt and some mm -hmm. of those other guys. Who are some of the others? Well, back in those days, it uh, you know I did a lot of wheeling up in Clayton, even though I was living in Houston, and a lot of those guys didn't race, but they taught me a lot of things. But you know Wyatt, I knew for. This is the funny thing about Wyatt. I saw him at that race. He and I talked a lot over the years. He lived in South Houston. I lived in North Houston. And then I opened that shop, Pringle Fab, as a side, basically a side business so I could get cheaper parts and pay for the parts to build a race car. But I never met Wyatt until King of the Hammers personally until I think it was 18 or 19. So I say for 10 years, he and I were good friends. I'd been to his house because I'd sold him a bunch of tubing. But uh, he and I had never met, but I had a lot of people I didn't really know per se. Uh, but, you know, the, the Crawling Chaos guys, you know, out of Central Texas, those were my first race friends, I guess I could say. So okay. Sean, Mike Stewart, um, A.K. Watley, I guess he's up in the Northeast now. Um, Longer Hans, Carl. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, that was my first, I guess, race family. And then kind of took a break from it and went wheeling. And uh, Brad and I would go up, you know, Thanksgiving, New Year's. We had our, our wheeling buddies and there would be always other people. And I actually met Zandy, I think, back in 2015. But I didn't really get introduced to him. And he actually thought Brad and I were assholes. Pardon the French, but that's what he would tell you if he was here. And it, <laughs> just, we just wheeled. We didn't really go talk to anybody. We stayed to ourselves and had fun drink and, you know, carried on. And if you're broke or whatever, come help you fix it up, you know, get unstuck. And then we'd wander off through the woods again. And 
So fast, uh, about that time I started racing with Doug Jackson. Okay. And, uh, that was, I think the first race was in 17 because, uh, his, uh, buddy Chris was racing with them at nationals. And that's when he had uh, just bought the car from, uh, Trent Truenbach, the 30 odd six car, which we st- still have that car, but they crashed real bad at nationals and Chris broke like three, four ribs. And, uh, it's like, I'm, I'm getting out. And so I raised my hand and got in the car with Doug Jackson and raced with him for two or three years until he decided he didn't, he didn't want to do it anymore. And I guess I was 18 and met a lot of people, you know, friends from there, you know, Alex Wacker, he lives down the street from me, uh, Chris Summers, BJ Allen, you know, uh, the gill straps, you know, we had a whole, back then we had a huge, I called team Texas crew. Uh, and we go wheeling and just, Go have fun. I still see those guys today. Yeah, and that's that's, that's a good group of people. They're really? crazy. Yes. <laughs> um, the Saturday nights at a, after a dirt riot race. Yes. Oh, God. Yes, there yeah. were some pretty good parties going on. And, you know, it, it's funny because I go back and look at some of that, and I didn't realize some of the names that came to some of those. They're even still around today. You know, Andrew McLaughlin was there, Shannon Campbell, Levi. Um, you know, I, I just, it's kind of wild on how things started there and where they've evolved to today. Derek West, um, you know, and even back in those days, we always help each other. That's the cool thing. I think I, I like about what we do now is none of us ever want to win in the pits. We always want to win on the track. And even back in the dirt riot days, when we were using junkyard parts or whatever, if we had it, it was somebody else's that they needed it. And that's how I met a lot of those people because I broke a lot of stuff. <laughs> you, we, the, the whole thing behind Dirt Riot was was to try to build a family, but also to teach the drivers and teams how to finish races. Um, yep. They weren't necessarily, you know, never had anything that was that was as long as, as a an Ultra 4 or King of the Hammer race, but I would try to throw in enough difficult stuff that you had to pound through to where, you know, you would, you would still have that experience. It just wouldn't be all flat dirt track. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, being, being that, you know, the shorter races, you're around the pits more, your team is around the pits more. And that way you have a better chance of meeting other competitors and teams so that when mm-hmm. you went to KOH, you didn't feel like you were by yourself because that could be daunting. Oh, and, and, and if you know, I cringe it sometimes. I hear these guys, the King of the Hammers is their first race ever. And you know, if you've never been to King of the Hammers, just going in the gate can be overwhelming just with all the people. And then you pull into Hammertown and you're like, what do you mean this wasn't here two months ago? There wasn't anything here. Uh, and then you have all the different vendors and manufacturers. And then you start seeing all these people that you see in magazines and billboards. And, uh, you know, like I remember uh, asking for directions from this older dude one day at Hammers when we were there in 2011. I was trying to find Aftershock. And he was real nice. He pointed it out. And we wandered off. And I forget who was in the car with me, but they're like, uh, you know who that was, don't you? I'm like, 
No, he looks kind of familiar. It was Rod Hall <laughs> and famous desert racer. And everybody's just nice. But if you first time being there, it's, it can be overwhelming. So it, uh, it's nice to go help out the other racers. And that's actually where Rufus racing came from. Uh, don't mean to jump ahead at all, but one of our things as a team is we always want to go help other people. And even like next year, I think it's pretty cool with this, the rookie class, you know, first it was going to be one. And I don't know, I think there's like 50 of them. And uh, so we've been trying to help the rookie class. So they're not overwhelmed and they know that they've got somebody that has been around the block a few times, has messed up a whole bunch. And hopefully we can help them not make the same mistakes we made and be more successful. Right. And that's one of the reasons that myself and Shelly got involved, especially during Dirt Riot years when we first started it with Dave. Um, at first we started it because XRA stopped. We knew there was right. all those cars out there. I didn't want to do the XRA style real short um, because all I ever heard was guys saying, you know, I'm going, you know, I'm driving, you know, 24 hours to get there and back. And, you know, I get to race for, you know, 128 minutes or, you know, a, a minute 28 is my race time. And so right. I thought, okay, let's, let's do it longer. Um, let's do this a different style. And so we started doing that. And then, you know, we had the discussions with Dave, Dave, uh, asked us, you know, well, we, we said, let's work together on this. Um, we didn't want to be, you know, I never wanted to do the full KOH style. I just wanted to do what we did at Dirt Riot. And at first he didn't understand that. He thought we wanted to be direct competition. And it was like, no, 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 we want, we want the guys that are just starting. We want to be your, you know, your, uh, your feeder league, maybe, you know, that's the, the best way of putting it. So Shelly started working registration and then Dave had me out at, uh, after the, the shit show, um, at chocolate thunder that year, he said, Hey, I need somebody to run chocolate thunder and deal with BLM and deal with the crowd and deal with the drivers and the media. And he goes, would you do that? And I said, absolutely. So I did that for a number of years, but the nice thing was, is it, it helped our drivers when they showed up to see familiar faces. Right. Are you going to be out there with them? Uh, I guess we're qualifying on chocolate thunder, which is going to be interesting here in 23, KOH 23, going back to the roots where we're going back rock racing instead of qualifying on a short course with a couple of rocks in it. Right. No, I'm not going to be there. Um, things have, uh, have changed for us because of, uh, health issues with my parents. So we're spending more time in Northern California than we would normally do. And I'm not going to, I, I I'm actually, it's all about how many people are out there in the craziness. While that's kind of fun. I'm not, I don't even like big cities anymore. I'm right you know, there with you. If I have to drive through a big city, it's in the middle of the night when nobody's around, you know, if I can time it that way. And I hate driving at night anymore, but I just, it's just gotten too big and too impersonal. I loved it when I would go to the, the campfire and there would be, you know, a thousand people there and I knew them. Right. And now, it's a little different. Yeah, it's a lot different now. Now there's, last time I was there, there was like, at nine o'clock at night, there was like 150 people and I didn't know a soul. Right. Well, now it's gotten so... 
competitive with all the different classes. If you're a racer, you're typically not at the pits or at the fire anyway. You're probably fixing your stuff or you're going to sleep to get up the next morning to either race or go pre-run. Correct. So it's mostly the, I don't know, I'd say the the pit guys or, you know, the spectators are normally, a lot of them are out there. Uh, you know, that's one thing I noticed this past year when I was there is I'd go walk and I wouldn't really know anybody. But it was the vendors that, you know, had packed up their, you know, closed down their shop and wanted to relax and, uh, it wasn't a whole lot of racers now. And to, and to see, you know, my friends, I had to go from pit to pit to pit to pit. And it just, uh, and you'd hopefully that somebody would be there. You know, right. it's like going to SEMA and trying to find the right person at the right time. You exactly. Know, you have to make 15 trips to a booth just to find the person that you need to talk to. So it's it not was, like, you call. what's the that? It's not, you can call them out there either. Cause the phones don't work. Correct. Yep. So yeah, we uh, we have people out there covering it for the magazine, but we haven't been out there the last couple of years. The last time we were out there, we stayed at Laser Town, Cody Wagner's place, and that was quite a relief because you didn't have to fight the crowds. You could just drive back and forth and and skip all the the madness of you know the Thunderdome out there. Right. Exactly. But it is an experience that I think everybody, any off-roader, anybody that's interested in, in especially any kind of off-road racing, needs to get out there and and see it at least once. It is, it really is a crazy event. The other thing I would I, I tell people is don't be afraid to ask. Go up and ask somebody questions. It doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a past king like Lauren or Shannon or Blyler or any of those guys. Any of those guys will give you their shirt off the back or, you know, give you advice on tire pressures or shock settings or, hey, this might be a better line. And a lot of people, you know, even me, I'm not one of the big names of Ultra 4, but, you know, when I get out there, the races, I get in race mode. And so I'm trying to focus on the race or whatever. And I tend to put blinders on and I don't mean that to do it rudely. But I notice other guys do it too. We're just focusing on what's ahead of us. But don't take that as we think we're better than anybody else. We're out there to work. We're out there to try to win. But we'll always, if you come up and ask us a question or just want to come talk or come into the pits, we'll gladly accept you and we'll take those blinders off. Um, Also realize that we probably won't remember everybody's name. So uh, always go and tell you, (laughs) hey, uh, you know, Chip, I'm Steve. I don't know if you remember me from wherever, but because we talk to a lot of people and that, you know, that part of that could be very intimidating for a first person. But if they know going in that everybody there is pretty much the same, they have the same mentality, that's why we're there. Feel free to speak up or ask a question or take a picture or, you know, hey, can I look at your car? You know, that's one thing I try to encourage you know, even people that have been out there for a, a number of years, they still don't do it. Um, you know, if there's a, a somebody is broke, you know, we're trying to change an engine or a transmission or, you know, something like that, that might not be the best time or it might be a great time because we might need somebody's help because we're tired and a fresh set of eyes sometimes helps. And that's how a lot of times the guys within Rufus Racing, that's how a lot of them have come into our team. They just came and asked questions. We got... One guy's name, we call him Mittens. His name is Ryan. 
he works at Lockheed and he sent us a message on Instagram one day and said, Hey, I'm, I like this thing, King of the Hammers and Ultra Four. Um, I don't know anything about it. And Zandy answered, he goes, dude, come out to the shop. Well, now he's a part of our race team. He does all of our communications. Um, same thing. We had a, a firefighter, uh, Johnny, he just joined our team a few months ago and it was just, you know, he was one of those that I'd walk by him and not recognize him and didn't have any clue that I had met him before, but I had my blinders on cause I was at a race and now he's part of our team. He's a full-time firefighter, but when he, he works two days and all four days. And so when he's off, he comes and works at the shop. So, and I know there's a hundred more stories like that. So the point of that is go talk to people, go ask them questions. If you don't know, don't be afraid to ask those questions. Right. Cause all of us, in this industry have been down that path. Some of us still are. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, unless, unless you're like Robbie Gordon, you know, he's, you started with, you know, nothing. with, with nothing and you've, and you built it up. Um, you know, I, I, I can remember some of those teams that are, that are out there racing and being at the very top of their game that, you know, when they, they first got involved, you know, they came out there like a, you know, a deer in the headlights. They had no, no idea what was going on or how to do things or what was the protocol, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or how to find the track. You know, uh, I remember that one of the first races I was, I came up on Tom ways and I passed him and I was like starstruck. I'm like, okay, I'm passing Tom ways. Something's wrong. And Brad's like, dude, don't worry about him. Just keep going. I go, but he killed a bear with his bare hands. I'm not, <laughs> but you know, you kind of got to get over that. And he's just like us. He'll come and ask what I've run a number of times since. And he's just an average dude like the rest of us. He just killed a bear. He didn't really kill a bear, but you know, that's, that's the myth. Right. But yeah. that's the way I, I mean, I've gone into Shannon Campbell's things a hundred times just to ask questions or Brian Crawford, you know, the Gomez, those are some of the nicest guys you could ever meet. They'll give you anything. And you might not get go walking in there and see Marcus or JP or something like that, but they've got a huge crew and those guys are really helpful too. And that's why I was just say, speak up. We all learn something somehow and that's how this sport evolves. Yeah, the the Gomez's are an interesting story. Um got to meet those guys the first time through Bob Rogie. We were they were gonna do their first race and it was down in Albuquerque or just outside of Albuquerque and I forget what they call it. It was like the Outlaw two fifty or something like that. And uh Bob and them were like, well hey, come on out and you know you can help in the pits or something. So we just kept track of of the lap laps that they were on and where they were positioned, that kind of stuff. And the way the race course was set up and people could go through the pit or not go through the pit. It was really hard to keep track of who was going where, but we, uh, we did that. And then, uh, I, this last, um, race that they did at Prairie city, since we were here in California, we went down there and I went into the pit cause I wanted to get the three three of the brothers together and do a podcast with all three of them at once. And um, one of the one of the navvies for them was like, "Are you kidding, Rich? 
They don't even have time to do their own meetings for the company together. They do it via phone because they each run different parts of the business and they're just constantly busy. So just finding those guys is, is difficult, but they're great guys. I started laughing when you said, I was trying to get all three of them together. I was like, the only time you're going to see all three of them together is if they're in spooners or out of limits and one of them is torn a corner off of their car. Right. (laughs) (laughs) See all three of those together. Or they're in their pits and they're getting ready to qualify. That's it. Exactly. You know, exactly. I actually don't know. I know I've seen them together at driver's meetings, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing, you know, any team and, I know I kind of repeat myself with this, but it's, we're a small family. There's a lot of people out there, but, uh, you know, there's a newer generation coming and we want to talk to those newer guys because, you know, I know I'm not going to be able to be in the car forever and we want to go help the newer generation and make this thing bigger and bigger and faster and safer. And, um, you know, so I encourage it. So if you ever see one of our guys walking around with a Rufus racing shirt, just go up and say hi to him. Go uh, go play some games on him. Go, hey, we met somewhere and see how long they go with the lie. It would be fun. So let's talk more personally now about Chip. And uh, you're married. Yes. And why don't you uh, why don't you talk about that? So I've uh, been married to my wonderful wife, Edie, just over five years now. Um, we've been together for 10, uh, we got engaged back in say 14, I think is when it was. And then Edie, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to go through a lot of chemo and radiation. She lost her hair. She was a very sexy bald chick. I wouldn't let her wear a wig. Um, but she didn't want to get married with out hair. So we waited a number of years and, her hair came back and we got married and three months after we got married, I found out I had cancer, I had prostate cancer. And that was five years ago last week, actually. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, we were meant to be together. Uh, she's got, uh, two children. I've got two children. Um, youngest is 17. The two boys are 28 and, uh, she, uh, moved up here to Dallas with me. We read right before I moved uh, from Houston to Dallas and we've been together ever since. So she works in the title business. Um, sometimes supports this crazy habit I have called racing. Uh, she enjoys it. And uh, she's like, but one of these days you got to get a real job. Cause you know, I run a construction company for Zandy and that was part of the deal. When we started Rufus racing, uh, actually I wouldn't, it's only supposed to be a temporary deal. And here we are four years later. Um, but the, the kids come out, you'll every once in a while, see one of the, the girls, we got Alex Grayson, Preston and Ryan and, uh, no grandchildren yet. I have a feeling that's going to change soon. There you but, go. Uh, we're, uh, the 21 year old Grayson just moved back. And, uh, so it's kind of interesting because we're empty nesters. And so we have Grayson and we have, Edie's 10 raccoons and possums that come up on the back porch every day. Wow. <laughs> so that's our other deal, but, um, yeah. Do you, do you mind talking about the prostate cancer? I think that's something that, uh, that is, uh, yeah. is something that, that, that men, including myself kind of ignore the possibility. Yeah. And, and I have absolutely no problem talking to anybody 
that has come down with prostate cancer. So, you know, the, the guidelines they say right now is go get checked at 50. Well, I got diagnosed at 44 and I was the youngest one my doctor had ever diagnosed. I had zero symptoms. Um, I take ADD medicine. And so I get my blood work done every six months. And he was watching my PSA levels and we watched it for a year and it kept going up. So a normal person uh, has like a 0.4 PSA level. Mine was like a five, not even a 0.5, but a five point something. So we went and did a biopsy, which is not a pleasant thing. If anybody wants to know that process, I'll tell them off, <laughs> not publicly, but right. Um, they can't do so. Yeah, we'll call you back in a week and tell you that you don't have cancer. Well, that was five years ago last week. And then that's when the hurricane started coming in. And I used to co drive with Doug Jackson. And Doug and I got on the phone and, you know, I was racing with him. And we said, what can we do to go help with the hurricane? This is when it hit Houston. So I think that was Ike or I don't know, the, the last big one that hit Houston. Okay. And consequently, that's also the same week that Operation Airdrop started. So the reason I'm telling all this, I was about to get my truck to head to Houston with supplies. And the doctor called me and said, hey, you need to come in. I go, well, there's a hurricane. I'm going down to help. And just now you really need to come in. You have cancer. And uh, that was a scary phone call. And so it turned out I had stage two prostate cancer. No symptoms at all. Did not know it. And three weeks later, I had my prostate removed. Um, it's not the end of the world. Things I've learned since then is almost all males get prostate cancer. A majority die before they know they have prostate cancer. Uh, and I think they're changing their guidelines to, you know, look for things earlier. Like pay attention to the PSA levels. You know, when you get your blood checked, have them do a full panel on it. Um, if it wouldn't have been for that doctor, just my general doctor noticed that my PSA level was high, I wouldn't have made 50. I turned 50 last week. And uh, it was a very aggressive stage two. And uh, so I, I, I say I'm the lucky one. So pay attention to those. Edie made me go because of her, you know, cancer battle. She had stage three, almost four. And, uh, you know, she's free and clear seven years. And now I'm free and clear five years. And it's not the end of the world. It's not the death sentence. If anybody gets it, you know, feel free to reach out with me privately because I learned a lot of things that doctors wouldn't tell me, the side effects, um, but they're all manageable. And, uh, you know, the, the Zandy, actually, I had the, my prostate removed three weeks later. I'm at Reno at Nationals doing pits for Doug Jackson. And that's when Zandy came out and was introduced to Ultra 4. So I couldn't lift anything for a while, but it's not the end of the world. So uh, go get checked. Good. Glad to hear that. And yeah, you know what? I should. I haven't it, been checked in, in years. It, and it's easy just to, I mean, I know people think, okay, prostate cancer, whatever. Okay. You know, a lot of us are type A personalities. We're tough. We don't like to go to the doctor. They think that they go get their prostate checked. They're going to have to go drop their drawers and have another male most of the time or female stick something in the rear end that they don't want to have in the rear end. 
You don't have to do that. Just go get a blood count. Look at the PSA level. Um, you know, as you get older, yeah, you're going to have to go do the uncomfortable things. Um, but it's either that or you, you have less of a time on this earth. And if you do find it, it's not a, and I had a four hour surgery, you know, I didn't go through chemo or radiation because, uh, well, chemo doesn't kill prostate cancer. You have to do radiation. That means they have to go in and put little radiation pills in your prostate. And they're like, well, you're young enough. We have robots. A robot went and took my prostate out. It took about four hours. I had to have uh, I stayed in the hospital for a week. And then I walked around with uh, my pee bag and a crown bag because I didn't like the strap-on thing under my leg. So everybody thought I was an alcoholic injecting crown right into my body. <laughs> but actually, my pee bag. Had it for two weeks, and then I had to slowly rebuild my muscles. And I'd say about 60 days afterwards, I was pretty much back to normal. Excellent. Uh, so that's an easy, you know, I look at Edie's fight. She fought for two years, you know, like the 30 something rounds of chemo. Then she had to go through 30 days of radiation. And I know a bit, she's looks at me like, how the hell did you get lucky and get, rid of your cancer in four hours and I had to fight for two years. It's a different cancer. She made it too. You know, it's uh, not the end of the world for her either. We both have side effects and it can play mind tricks, but it's better than being dead. True. True. Very true. So the, um, yeah, the chemo, my mom had breast cancer and she used to be a radiation, um, oncologist, therapist, whatever, um, you know, using the high energy machines to, to treat cancer patients. And so she knew what she was getting into when she got it, but they, uh, the chemo, man, they, they poison the hell out of your body to, to kill it. If chemo's the, can work on your, on your cancer. Yeah. And, uh, it was brutal on her. I mean, especially because of her age. Yeah. Edie was, uh, I always talk about she's 25 every day, but uh, she was in her mid-40s when she got diagnosed, and she just found a lump on the side of her breast. And, uh, you know, they went in, and it was about the size, I think, of uh, not quite a baseball, but between a ping-pong ball and a baseball. This is what the size of the tumor they removed. And, uh, you know, but she got lucky. You know, they didn't find it when they did. Uh, hers was very aggressive, too. Right. But yeah, it, I mean, it, it's a fight and you gotta, you know, we did it with humor and I named her uh, when she got her tumor, I looked at her and we're talking about it afterwards. I go, Hey, Google the most popular ex-boyfriend's name. She goes, what do you mean? I go, well, just type that into Google and see what it is. And it was, she goes, it's Nick. <laughs> I go, okay, we need to break up with Nick. So we, uh, I remember told my mom, we made this saying said ethnic. And I told my mom, she's like, why are you calling it ethnic? I go, no, mom, ethnic, not like a race ethnic. And uh, that's how we got through it. And she broke up with Nick. But that's that's we, awesome. We we did it with humor. And um, I think we helped some other people. And then when I got cancer, um, we did it with humor as well. You know, I told everybody I was going to have a squirt gun tied up to my uh, – my bag, so don't make me mad or I'll squirt them. And, <laughs> uh, 
Doug Jackson was there the day I, you know, videoed me live on Facebook as I was coming through out of my uh, surgery. And uh, we just, you know, we did it with laughter. It helped deal with the pain and uh, depression and it, uh, it got us through it. So what is next for, for Chip? Well, that's, it's undecided. Okay. And, you know, three weeks ago, um, we lost my friend Zandy. And so I didn't realize how integrated our lives were. He owns my company. He owns the race cars. He was one of my best friends. Um, and we're going to try to continue as best we can without him. That'll, that'll be difficult because Zandy was such a, had such a great personality and, you know, kind of larger than life. And he just larger. attracted people. Yeah. You know, he approached me back in 18. You know, he came to Reno to, I called him like, hey, dude, I got a room. Come up here and watch this Nationals. I'm up here. I was recovering from cancer and my surgery. And he came up and flew up, watched uh, Doug Jackson and all those guys race, met Gil Strap which there's a whole lot of good stories with that and uh, came home in in uh, October, I think of 18, he ended up buying what we now call donkey from Doug Jackson and started this team called Rufus racing. And the, the whole point of the team was let's go make some memories and find friends and uh, you know, just do it until it's not fun. And, the original agreement was is I was going to drive donkey and teach him how to race, which I'm not sure exactly how I got that job. Very thankful, but there's way better qualified people to do it. And uh, so Brad and I raced donkey at King of the Hammers in 19 and came in 15th. And he was a wreck dropping, you know, radios. Where are they? Let's make sure they get finished. And, um, the, the deal was, is he was going to get in a co-driver's seat race with me a little bit and then get in the driver's seat and either I would be a co-driver or, you know, go do whatever I wanted to do. And, uh, we finished 15th at that 19 King of the Hammers. And he goes, you and Brad are a good team. Uh, let's keep going. And we had Diamond. He's still actually working for us. He's our lead mechanic. You know, he, we, he's known Zandy since he was 17. And Diamond's 35 now. Let's keep going. And we went to AOP in April of that year. And Brad couldn't go. So Zandy got in the car to co-drive with me. And we finished that race, I don't know, 7th or 6th or 7th, whatever. Two weeks later, he shows up with Nightmare, which is Keenan Leatherwood's old car. I'm like, what happened to you get in this car and... Me teaching because now we're going to race both of them now. Okay. okay. Then a month later, we end up with two more razors because we were going to pre run King of the Hammers. And that turned into full blown razors races, which we've raced them for three years. And uh, 
December of 19, we're getting everything ready to go to King of the Hammers. And then he buys what we call Irene, which was Alex Wacker's old car. And I, for a while, I'm like, dude, are you trying to get like the Tribe 16 collector set? (laughs) Other ways, you don't have to buy every car that comes up for sale. (laughs) And, uh, but it was, he had the means to do it and he enjoyed it. And we became a family. And, we would challenge each other, you know, and it was, he always said, it's always about making memories. And for the three years that I've been racing with them, I can only think of one race specific memory. And it's when he and I ended up at the podium at the nine, one rate race in February, but every other memory that comes to mind at first were the off track antics of getting to the race or getting home or, getting a razor stuck out in the water in San Felipe when we were racing down there and just bringing the family, bringing our friends and then gaining new friends, you know, Rufus racing didn't just Zanny and I, we brought in, uh, I don't know if you ever met Pip justice. He's from Australia. We met, they were, uh, they called it dumpster camping in 18 at hammers. They all met by a, a fire. Well, he's going to come race donkey at nationals this year in at King of the Hammers. He's coming all the way back from Australia now that they can do it. But uh, same thing with like Tim Hooper with Fuel Works and the Wicks brothers up in uh, Reno. Um, you know, we just grew this big family. We camp together. We uh, have a lot of fun together. We go on vacations together. And you know, recently we get we started doing the same thing with Ryan Rockhold out of Colorado. And uh, it makes it interesting on trying to organize when we go to races. Um, you know, oddly, when Zandy got killed a couple weeks ago, it was in the race car up in Crandon, and he and I were the only one there with Rufus Racing. We had Ryan Rockold and one of his buddies and a few other racers, but we didn't have our, our crew. And yesterday, I'm sitting here getting ready to plan for nationals, and I don't know, we got almost 40 people going. And that's all the family and friends that we gained along the way. So that's that's what uh, we're going to try to continue. And we're going to race nationals. I'm going to race under Zandy's number, the 24, because he's sitting in sixth place overall. I've been out of the race because I've had mechanical problems this year. But Pip's going to race under my number. And then we're going to King of the Hammers. And what we do after that, I don't – it's unclear. You know, when, when somebody dies, there's a lot of things that have to happen in the background, especially when you have your hands in as many things as Sandy did with different companies and projects. You got to let the lawyers sort things out and you kind of everything kind of freezes. But I know we're going to carry on his name and tradition for forever. And I don't know what it looks like. Okay. Um, but there's, there's still a lot of us, you know, every day it's an up and down. Um, we're going to do the best we can. Keep the companies going. Um, we're not selling anything, race cars or anything like that. Uh, we just got to play it day by day. And our sponsors are stepping up. Maxis, Chris Shaw at Maxis is an amazing guy. His first thing was like, okay, what do we need to keep this going? Because it was funded by eco staff and Zandy and we still have eco staff, but we don't have Zandy. 
And so there's a lot of people trying to step up to continue this train we started. Excellent. I, I remember there in Sturgis, our race, when we first met um, Zandy, you brought him up there and you guys had your Groms and you were heading going to be heading into town and just, you know, not on Harleys, but on Groms. So it was awesome. And then yeah. you, uh, one of Shelly's things is always to ask new drivers, you know, how'd you get involved? And, you know, he had mentioned, you know, that, that he was rock crawling and that, you know, that you, um, got, you know, got him involved in the racing, but it was his accountant or lawyer or maybe the combination of the two, if they're not the same, but said, Hey, you know, you, you need to go out and spend some money. Yep. So find something you really like to do and go spend some money, go have some fun. Yep. And that's, and that's awesome. You know, that's where, because he brought a lot of people into it as well. The, the, so the backstory on that, and, and that's a true story, but he started helping teams down at the Baja 1000. Mike Hell's out of Arkansas. Um, he helped Josh Birchie for a little while with the original started bear tracks. Um, and, you know, so he was helping sponsor these things. And the accountant started looking at what he was spending. He goes, dude, I didn't mean to go do that. If you're going to do that, you might as well go race yourself. And so Rufus Racing was born. And that's when he bought the first car. And uh, that's when we came up to Sturgis, that he, we only took his car because I wanted to help him learn. And I think that was this, his second race. The first race was at Crossbar and he raced with Doug Jackson, who was his co driver. And he got a top 10. Which I was like, dude, now we're really screwed. Your first race in Ultra Four, you get a top ten, <laughs> and, you know. But that's it's exactly what it was. That's you're either going to pay taxes on this, or you can go do something with it. And like everything, he kind of took it to the extreme. I mean, we've got three race cars, forty four hundred cars. We got these two Turbo S's cars. We have a Pro R that we were supposed to turn into a Baja one thousand car uh, for November. And, uh, you know, he just, Zandy did it his way and it was, it was a lot of fun and he even had more enjoyment bringing the people that normally couldn't do this with them. Like, honestly, I wouldn't have been able to do what I've done the past three years without him, not even remotely close. I might've been able to race side by side once, um, but that's what it's about. Right. But the ground thing because that was the first time Ange had ever been on a Grom. And I think we had four of them up there and uh, riding around in Sturgis on Groms. Everybody's looking at us like we're crazy. I'm like, oh, no, we're we're not bikers. We're race car drivers. We're racing over at the Buffalo Chip. Yep. <laughs> that yeah. was some. That was a fun time there in Sturgis. It, it, uh, it was. And we've been back every time since. So that we've raced there four times now. And, uh, you know, we were there this past event where we you know and now we all have harleys because of that <laughs> so andy got one brad got one i did and uh you know that was our thing so we'd go to the races and go ride bikes and that was part of the deal how i started running earthworks when we first started racing i'm like dude i don't have enough time vacation time to do all the stuff you want to do because i got to handle because uh 
you're now running earthworks. I'm like, I'm doing what? He goes, yeah, go find a way to make some money so we can keep doing this. So I went from doing sales to running a dirt construction company. And here we are three years later, still going strong. That's an awesome story. So there's a, we probably have a thousand more, you know, you can even go ask, you know, we got diamond and Brad and peanut and all of them. They, they love to tell stories and, prank the other one and zandy was um the same way i mean my last words to him while i was standing up in the the spotter stand at crandon was hey dude you're sitting in fifth place in nationals there's a lot of people tearing the cars up just go out and have some fun and i said by the way it sucks being in the spotter stand i'd rather be down there with you and he goes well cracked on the radio and he's laughing i can tell he's laughing he goes uh well if you weren't so slow you could hurry your ass up down here and get in a race suit and you can go pretend to be me. And so I said, replied back to him. I was like, no, you finish races. I haven't been, go have some fun. And, uh, it's the last thing I said to him and he crashed, uh, made a very small mistake and checked up for a jump at about 70 miles an hour and endowed and went for a barrel roll. And one thing I've been trying to tell people about this sport, there's a few things. One thing I know is every time I strap into a car, it could be my last. And I'm okay with that because it, it, it's what I love. But Zandy's accident wasn't anybody's fault besides themselves. It wasn't uh, the chassis builder. It wasn't the mechanic, you know, Diamond. You know, when things like this happen, we're like, oh, my God, what happened? Well, he hit the ground so hard, basically the roof collapsed and it broke his neck and welds didn't break. It wasn't a bad design. Um, there's been a number of us go through the car to look at it. We haven't put it out publicly because I just don't really think it needs to be, but I brought people in from the outside going, okay, what can we learn from this? How do we prevent this in the future? And we haven't got a real clear answer because Zandy's car on those from the A to B pillar was two inch chromoly sleeved with inch and three quarter chromoly. The jaws of bike couldn't even get the cage cut to get them out. And it was just one of those freak accidents. And he had all the right gear. He had the right car. Um, and he just made a small mistake with catastrophic consequences. And, that's something we have to live with, you know, doing this type of sport. It is dangerous. I mean, it's also dangerous getting in your car, driving down the highway or getting up and walking across the wet floor into the bathroom. You never know when it's going to be your time. And it wasn't anybody's fault, not the track's fault, not the, it, I don't want anybody to feel blame. And some people are. So that's why I'm stressing that. Right. Understood. It, when something like that happens, everybody involved looks at it and, you know, wonders if it was something they may have done. And that's, that can be really tough on, on those that are, that are involved. Um, you know, there's always having that questions and, and it's that way in, in any situation. And I think that, uh, I think people just need to understand that, you know, things, things just sometimes goes sideways and something happens and it's not anybody's fault. It's just, uh, circumstances. 
it, you know, and I, maybe that's the age where we are with lawyers and lawsuits and things like that. There's no lawsuits being filed with any of this. Um, we're not blaming anybody. You know, Ryan Donaldson, who was with Tribe, built a lot of that car. He works for me now with Earthworks. And that's one of the things I didn't, you know, that long drive home from Grandin, when I got home, that's one of the things I didn't think about. I was thinking about Ange, um, that's Sandy's wife, uh, his kids, um, our team, our companies, you know, the family that we, you know, just if you take what we've done with the race team, it's the same thing within the companies. You know, uh, I, I had them on my mind and I got home and I realized that I hadn't really thought about Adam at Tribe or Ryan who works for me. And so I got Ryan to come with me and we went and looked at the car and I, I showed him, you know, it and it's raw, it's not been claimed or anything. And he understood, he goes, okay, it's not something I did. Cause he welded a lot of that car and the same thing with diamond. And it, it's just, if things are going to go bad, they're going to go bad and you can't control the consequences no matter what you do. True. And uh, the reminder to everyone is to live every moment to the fullest. Oh, Zandy 100% did that. And he and I often talked, was like, because he's, he's 55 and I just turned 50 and like, we're not gonna be able to do this much longer. And you see the younger crew coming through like Paul Wolf and I say Levi Shirley, I would say that he's a young one. He's been around for a long time, but he started real young. And those guys' bodies heal a lot quicker. And, you know, we were taking advantage of all we could. And then we're trying to find out a way to keep it going, but maybe help other people. And, you know, if we don't race as much as Rufus Racing. I think one of the – we're going to keep on the tradition of making memories, but we might go and – help other teams maybe give them some tires or some wheels or uh just help get them over that you know crest to to become great and i think that's where we're headed the the companies are going to keep going and just live like he's still here and uh, try to represent what he taught us excellent excellent and I think that's a, a real good segue. So, um, Chip, thank you so much for coming on board and spending some time. I still want to get the uh, the Zoom call recording done with uh, with everybody. We'll figure that out um, here in a couple of weeks. That's but be uh, thank you for your friendship over the years, and thank you for for sharing your life and uh, everything that was involved in that. Well, I appreciate you you giving uh, me a platform to help spread the word about us and me and enjoy that you're still around after you know, 15 years of knowing each other and still doing what you do. So uh, I love you and Shelly to death. And uh, even back in the days when I was watching Josh grow up with you. Yeah. I mean, that's been a long time ago. I still talk to him too. Good. And, uh, you know, it's all a big family. Very so true. Everybody reaching out and past few weeks and you know the other part of this is, is when you go through something like this it's okay to talk and some of my guys won't even talk so i appreciate you bringing us bringing me on so i could talk for them my pleasure all right chip you take care and have a great day 
and we'll talk again here shortly. Thanks, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.